Good morning. Happy Valentine's to everyone. So glad you could join us today. And so much love to you on this love day. I pray that you will experience God's love in a very special way today. You know, it doesn't matter if you don't get chocolates or flowers or, you know, someone to uh, give you that Valentine dinner or whatever it is. Just know this. God's got you. He loves you. And he doesn't love you with a temporary love. He loves you with an everlasting love, a consistent love. And so we just want to lift up the love of God today. And so happy Valentine's Day. And this is our Black History Month as well. And we're experiencing great blessings from God as we study his word and how he gives us information about who we are. So we're celebrating Black History Month, the Black family representation. Does it ever occur to you that people can have all kinds of strange opinions about you that you don't even, you're not even aware of yourself? Maybe perhaps they're stereotyping you or they're watching too much of Hollywood that defines what the black family would look like. I get asked some strange questions and I'm sure you have too on occasion. I get asked questions about, are you married? Do you have children? And believe it or not, I had a client who actually asked me, an old gentleman, does your husband beat you? And I said to him, are you married? He said, yes. I said, have you ever beaten your wife? He said, no. I said, well, why do you think my husband would beat me? Because, you know, really, there is a stereotype. Um, that black men are violent, they're not loving, you know, all the things that um, people, um, the images that are portrayed of us in the media. And so I, I, I find myself having to correct people about what the black family is and look like. I get questions about um, my kids, what do they do? Um, are they in school? <laughs> you know, and, you know, you hear the stories about black young people being school dropouts. And so you get all, all these questions of, of people who have stereotyped you. The black family in all ways are no different from any other family on the planet. We represent the backbones of our community communities. We are strong, we're stable, and yes, at times dysfunctional. We come from various forms. And but I have to say that we are resilient because our history have proven it. And yes, we have been through slavery and colonialism. And in, in many cases, these have informed the way we have structured our families. But we're all aware that race and gender and a whole host of variables can impact how we're represented in, in the eyes of society and also how we're included in society. So today I just want to take some time to point out that in spite of all the barriers, the black family can and must continue to thrive and flourish wherever we find ourselves. I would like to share a little bit about my personal journey before coming to Canada. I was born and raised in an extended family and by grandparents. And I must say that I believe that I've gotten the best of 
family life. Um, we knew about racism, but it really didn't have any specific impact on our lives because our communities really raised us. You know, they say it takes a village to raise a child. And most of us can look back at our childhood and say, had it not been for the society that we were raised in, we wouldn't be where we are today. I can think of so many people in my own personal background that have shaped and informed my life and have inspired me to be the woman that I believe I am today. You know, I remember growing up and hearing about the civil rights movement in the USA and, and being encouraged to embrace our blackness. My dad came back from Canada, uh, studying in Canada, and he's like in the 60s, he's like, you know, black power and, and take cut off your hair and grow this fluffy afro. And I did. I had this beautiful afro. But I showed up at school and I wasn't get I didn't get any brownie points for my afro. In fact, I was made a spectacle. I was told, you know, look at you, you cut off your long, beautiful hair and you're wearing this hairstyle. And it was a warning from the, the headmistress of my school so that the other kids didn't take their cues off me I, and and grow an afro because there was still that sense of, you know, that colonial stuff in inside of us. And so uh, people came back from North America and they were bringing back a lot of the messages from the civil rights movement, you know, Malcolm X, Martin Luther King Jr. And, you know, I remember being immersed in that. I also remember crying at their, their, you know, their early deaths, like most of the people in the world grieved when these men died. And so even as a child, you understood that you're caught up in a web of a great uh, humanity and that um, whether we choose to, to ignore it um, or deny it. We have to embrace the fact that, yes, our history has a lot to do with the shaping of our societies and our families as well. But you see, back even then, as a child, we, we, we were concerned about representation and inclusion. In the islands, we didn't have the Jim Crow and the segregation laws. We didn't have to go to colored washrooms or sit in the back of the bus. Um, we, but we had our own non-legislated um, boxes in which we put people um, and, and who is representable in the upper class and the lower class, the haves and the have-nots, who got the benefit and the praise for the way they looked. Um, I remember the carnival queen competitions and initially you had to be of a certain complexion and texture to be entered. Eventually they, they had to embrace people with lighter and darker skin tones as well. Hair length and tone, all that was part of the inheritance of a colonial system. You know, the passport to acceptance into the upper class. And you know, we, we in the islands, we had subtle ways of insinuating um, who um, would it get favor, you know, in a family setting. It was the child with the lighter complexion and the mixes of hairs and, you know, all this kind of stuff. And so these residual effects of slavery and colonialism, the subservient culture, always looking at the dominant culture. And then again, when television came into our um, our island, I remember those early years, we watched those Western movies. You hardly ever saw a black actor unless they were in a subservient role as a servant or, or some other thing, you know, like those early Western movies. And so 
we had these images of what we should be like, what, what, um, you know, the Bridget Bardo and Elizabeth Taylors. And so it was all about the hair and the looks of, of white actresses and actors. And so, you know, we, we were somewhat whitewashed in a way. And so, you know, we even hear people using terms that uh, when pe persons were emulating by the hair and the dress and the, and the speech and all that, that you were somewhat of an Oreo, meaning you're black on the outside and white on the inside. And this created a lot of disunity and fractions about the non-essentials, because these things that are external are not who we are. That's not what makes us strong. That's not what make us resilient, you know. Externals are not what define us. And so the sad reality is that even in today's uh, society, kids are being marginalized because of how they dress. And if you don't dress black, you're not really black. I remember my kids getting, um, you know, bullied at school because they were wearing the big um, pants like the white rock bands. They call them skaters. And the black kids would like gang up on them. Like, why are you, why are you dressing like that, man? You know, because you're supposed to dress black, you know. And, you know, these are just minor things about how we uh, find ourselves in these conversations about assimilation and representation and, and the pushbacks that you get from the dominant class and, and from your own people. So black integration in, in these cultures in North America poses you know, risks as well for black students and kids in, in the classroom that can create a certain amount of stressors for them. Um, I raised my kids in a pretty much all white community. When they were small, they were like maybe one or two kids in the class of that were kids of color. And sometimes these can create stresses for your children as well. And so today, I just want to stress that, you know, we're not looking at all the negative impact today, but just lifting up the black family. Um, because the, the things that define us are the same things that define any other family. And so passing judgment on each other only contribute to more dysfunctionalism in our families and in our communities. Because this phenomena is not just in black societies. It is so cross-cultural. And as we wrestle with the barriers uh, to progress and assimilation, we must realize that we've come a long way and we still have a, a long way to go. The trouble is that today we do not need to identify our struggles and rehash the past, but we must look at how we can allow the past to inform us so that we do not return to the unhealthy practices that cause disunity and dysfunction in many of our families. And, and this is not unique to the African diaspora. And, you know, even the post-colonial India, they had some of the same struggles that we have. I've read in stories about how when Mahatma um, Gandhi returned from South Africa to rejoin the struggle in India, how he was so alarmed when he returned to see how he, the Indian people have had stopped wearing their own clothing and were wearing um, the suits and the and the other kinds of clothes that the Englishmen were wearing, and Mahatma Gandhi uh, created this spectacle with having them bringing all their clothes 
and to create this big bonfire of burning all the English clothing and, and boosted the people's selfhood, pride and economy and getting them back into their Indian um, clothing. And so this kind of struggle about identity and representation is not just a black thing as well. Gandhi refuted this practice and advised the Indians um, to return to their own um, pride in their, in their own dress. And even because of that today, you know, anywhere you go in the world, you see East Indian um, people, they dress in their saris and their beautiful clothing. In fact, living in Brampton, you know, this is kind of what you see every day. And so we lift that up because, you know, it, it defines who they are. You know, the Hebrew people themselves um, were defined and established in a particular hierarchy where they had the males dominating the family. You had a patriarchal society in the Bible. And this societal structure kind of left women in a precarious position in the biblical text. They were totally dependent on on the male um, structure of the Bible. And when the children of Israel made their way um, into Egypt uh, at the time of the famine, we know that Jacob gathered all his children around him on his deathbed and, and to bless them. But uh, what a dysfunctional family they were at the time. Um, he had some scathing um, prophecy over, over, over his sons, especially the first three sons, Reuben, um, Simeon, and Levi. Um, Dinah was the firstborn, but she was a woman. And interestingly, um, her narrative, the major story around Dinah was that she was raped by Shechem, who was a ruling uh, Canaanite. And then they moved... Um, into an unusual story where the rapist now wanted to take her for his wife. And Jacob responded to the overtures um, um, with prudence and care and began to negotiate with Shechem's family to have Dinah marry into this Canaanite family. But his sons resisted the direction for this action and they, they became really deceitful. This is in Genesis 34 and 13. And they made a demand that if they're going to be included in their family, the men of Shechem should be circumcised. And so they went along with it, not knowing that this was not about honoring Dinah's um, issue because she was raped. That wasn't the reason. They wanted to exercise vengeance on this guy who defiled their sister. And so they concocted this kind of scheme where Simeon and Levi took the initiative to um, break faith with these new blood brothers. And they um, asked all the men to be circumcised. And while they were in this painful dilemma of being circumcised, they attacked the men. They killed Shechem. They killed his father. They killed every male in the town. And then they raped all the women and pillaged the city. Their violence begot further violence and continuous issues with the Canaanites. And you see, 
This is the reason why when we read the Bible in the setting that it was, it was shaped in, we can see how these kinds of family dynamics can have repercussions, not just in the times in which it had occurred, but for generations. And so a kind of holotry um, seemed to have been a part of the, the nature of these sons of Jacob. And so we learned later after that, that Dinah, it appears to be, was just silenced. We didn't hear anything else about Dinah except for her rape. And the story gives the Bible readers, you know, permission to talk about the rape and the sorry history um, of, of how they responded um, to her dilemma. Um, this text contributes to this kind of silence. Genesis 34, 1 to 31. We don't know what ever happened again to this woman, the one daughter of Jacob. But he elevated the sons as best he could. But they were a troubled tribe. The 12 sons of Israel were given blessings and predictions about their future. And after 40 uh, 430 years of slavery in Egypt. Um, well, not all of the time in Egypt was not slavery, but a significant amount of time they were in slavery. These descendants now emerged from Egypt intact as 12 tribes. And they were given the names of these sons of um, Jacob. And we know that Moses and Aaron, their leader, they were descendants of Levi. The same Levi who conspired with his brother Simeon to attack the, the, the Shechem um, tribe, the Canaanite tribe, and kill all these people and raped all these women. The 12 tribes, as they journeyed via the wilderness, had one destination in mind, and it was the same land of Canaan, the land of promise, the land of milk and honey. And this was a land that had been occupied by the Canaanites, the same Canaanites that hundreds of years before um, were devastated by these sons of, of, of Israel. The heroic account of how they entered into the land and possess it can be understood through the lens of war, defeat, and conquest. Some scholars believe that they just simply merged with the Canaanites and dwelled peacefully among them, but we're not very clear on that. What is clear is this, that the numerous accounts of ancient civilizations weren't necessarily civil because of the wars and the conflicts that um, dominated their, their, their time and their cultures. And humankind in all its tribes, clans, and groups have been plagued with xenophobia that have led to disunity and worsening um, and, and predispositions to violence. And so, you know, sometimes when we hear about the violence in the black community, we think like, are we the only ones, you know, jostling and struggling with power and, and being like, you know, as they say, crab in the barrel. I think sometimes we too have created these stereotypes for ourselves. The reality is that rule and dominance and power and the desire for relevance and all of these ideas are not um, a black issue alone. Humanity is filled with family drama from from the from the day one, from Cain and Abel. You know, um, so we know that 
we're not all the Cains, you know. Some of us are the Abels as well. And so in this conversation, what I want us to do today is to realize that um, as a group of people, we, in spite of the, the recipients of slavery and being, um, you know, involved in all that the crime and the atrocities, we're no different from the children of Israel. Um, we are emancipated, yes. And they, they had a promised land to go to. We didn't have a promised land to go to. We had to stay in the places of our oppression. And so I think as the African diaspora, who have come out of out of hundreds of years of slavery. I think we're doing pretty good. You know, I think there's a long way to go, but God is blessing his people. And hundreds of years later, our descendants will look back at this time with the same disbelief that we've come this far. And I've got to tell you, we've come this far, not because of our own genius, but because of the grace of God. And so, I want us to really realize how far God has brought us as a people. The children of the African diaspora who were brought here in chains via the Middle Passage, we are still striving today by the grace of God. And even in the midst of all of that, we still strive to be reconciled with the descendants of our owners. And this is our greatest challenge, you know. Curtis Paul, the youngest scholar that I love and read a lot, he says, you know, reconciliation is our greatest challenge, but our only hope. And I believe that God is moving us toward reconciling our past. Today, in spite of the barriers and the roadblocks that we face, I think we have come a long way, but we have much farther to go. But I don't believe that we're relying on the dominant, the dominant caste, if you will, to make a passage for us. Just as the children of Israel, when they came out of Egypt, the Canaanites did not make a passage for them. The Moabites did not make a passage for them. The Midianites did not make a passage for them. They had to forge their way ahead to the place where God had prepared for them. And I want to say that as black families, we've had to pave the way and forge the head in spite of. We hear the stories of, of, of colonial times when the men were tempted to go back to the, to the plantations because they were so desperate. And many of the women put their foot down and said they would rather die than return to slavery. And so, you know, you, we are people that are resilient. We're not all people that are wanting to depend on the system as, as we have been stereotyped. Today, I would like to ask us the question as, as, as black families, are we now positioned for a greater opportunity to flourish than those that we celebrate during the month of black history? We celebrate the Rosa Parks and, and um, you know, the Underground Railroad and, and all those women and men who were so brave that forged ahead in spite of. And yes, we should celebrate them. But are we in a better place to make a greater impact on the next generation for our families? You know, I get asked this question a lot. Uh, Pastor James, what about the church? Isn't the church, uh, in, uh, isn't the church interested in what is happening with our young people? with our young families? What can the church do to break the stigma that is associated with black families? 
And I too feel that it's a call on my life to be involved. I remember seeing a young black lad about uh, 10 years old sitting in the back of a police cruiser one day in Brampton. And my heart just broke. And I remember praying out to the Lord that day and, and just asking God, what has gone wrong? What in the world could have this young man could have done? Like the tenderness of his age and to be sitting in a, in a back of a police cruiser. And I mean, my heart just broke. And I'm thinking as a parent, what I would, I would, I don't know how I would respond to something like that have, happening to one of my boys. And so, you know, um, we, we all play a role. This is, this is, the, this is, the key for those of us who grew up in the Caribbean, we know what it's like. You know, I'm not a social anthropologist or, or anything like that, but I can look at the word of God and say that God word, God's word made a difference in my life. I grew up in the churches. On an average Sunday, I would attend maybe four different services, four different churches and denominations. This was the Caribbean life. And I believe that the church, the black church, played a significant role in our lives and in our upbringing and in our education. I mean, the, the kid, most of the, the young people in my time attended schools that were run by faith organizations. Yes, you had government run schools but the kids that attended many of the schools that were religiously run excelled you know did well became professionals I remember the school that I went to was a private school and we were told that we were going to be leaders when we go out in the world we were going to be leaders and indeed in fact I can trace back on many of my peers that I went to school with and they're all leaders in different parts of the world so we know that the religious um, structure that we were raised in um, really was responsible for the outcomes in many of our lives and in our family lives. So when we look at the children of Israel, we see some parallelism uh, with the black family. And we see how Moses, when he bought them out of Egypt, understood that it wasn't his mission, but it was God's mission to bring his people out of slavery and not just out of slavery, but into relationship with God and that God was not to be exempted from the community. They were supposed to worship God on a daily basis. And on coming out of Egypt, this mix of, of the clans of the, of the children of Israel, they needed laws to keep them safe in the community and to remember these commands when they, when they fraternized with the other um, nations around them. And we will see that there were times when they kept the commandments and there were times when they broke them. And when they broke those commandments, the, the, the whole community suffered. So these laws that were given to them were not laws that were punitive, but they were laws to actually liberate them from their propensity for failure and for sin. And so history of this people can be a learning pattern for us. Um, because when we see the families of Jacob and how they um, kept these spiritual and community laws, they were able to maintain their tribes to this day. Um, advocacy was necessary as well. And so through Moses, God was able to advocate um, uh, for the people um, through Moses. And 
they listened to Moses as a leader at times and God listened to his people uh, when they called upon him. But Moses and the priests, they acted as advocates before God. There were times when God just wanted to wipe them out and Moses would pray to God and say to God, you can't do this because the nations around us will laugh us to scorn and laugh you to scorn and say you failed because you brought these people out of Egypt and look they're worse off or they died so the people came to a place called Shitz, um, Shithem and the Israelite men got caught up with the women of Shittim and decided that they were going to have sexual relations with these women and as a result of that we see here again, I don't know, these men of, 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 of Israel, they, they tend to get into these, um, these sexual um, problems. And because of that, a plague came over the land and killed uh, about 24,000 of the Israelites, which put Moses in a, in a terrible situation and the leaders of Israel in a terrible situation. Um, it's a long story, but what happened out of that situation was that he had to do a new census. He had to call a census to organize the people and to figure out who they were, uh, because as they were dying uh, from this plague, their numbers were reduced. Um, so here is Moses, and he is um, delegating lands to the different tribes. There was a, um, one of the tribes was the tribe of Manasseh. And it's interesting because when Joseph was dying, he should have blessed Manasseh, the oldest, but he crisscrossed his hand and he gave the blessing to Abraham, to Ephraim. And so in a sense, Manasseh, at this stage of the journey, he had no male ear kind of like self-fulfilling prophecy in a way, because it seems that Moses knew that Manasseh was not supposed to be blessed. And so he just ignored the clan of Manasseh. And so a man named Zelophehad, which would have been the last in, in Manasseh's line, died leaving five daughters behind. And these daughters recognized that all the other clans had property and land, and they said it's not fair. So they, as women of their time, they took a bold move and a bold step, and they, they confronted Moses and the elders of their community and said it is not fair. Our father paid his dues, and because he doesn't have a male ear, we're left with nothing. Of course, Moses said he sought God and God told him to change the laws so that if a man does not have a male ear, he can leave all of his um, estate to his female daughters. And if he doesn't have any female daughters, then those would be left to the men. So we see they found ways to flourish and they did, recognizing that they needed community structures and laws and spiritual grounding. You know, the Apostle Paul admonished the Ephesian church, that church family with these words. He said, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, I beg you to lead a life worthy of the calling to which you've been called with all humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love, making every effort to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. It is our calling. It is our calling to maintain a unity of the spirit in the bond of 
peace. You know, we've all grown up with the adage that says a family that prays together stays together. And I believe that spiritual component is like a glue that can keep our love intact, a place of love and a, a powerful vector for growth and well-being in any family. The black family is as strong as its commitment to love each other. And it seems to me that it's a prescription of spiritual law and advocacy and, 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 and family members who go before the throne room of God to lift each other and pray for each other. This is the remedy for our flourishing in all families regarding, regardless of your race and, and regardless of the barriers that have been put in your way. You can thrive and flourish wherever we find ourselves if we've got that spiritual law and those communal law that are, uh, um, are working in our lives. And so we can have the dynamic families we can have the families that are flourishing in this generation. And I believe that there is hope for the black family. Yes, we see young men killing each other on the street. We're mindful of it and we're praying into it as well because we believe that prayer can change things. Yes, we can pray. And I believe that with prayer and advocacy and prayer and engagement, you know, you can start with your family. Start with your family. Start gathering your children around you. Education is not just what you get in the schools. Parents and, and, and families have a responsibility to educate the young. You know, when I was a child, I had more education um, growing up at home on the knees of my grandfather. Then by the time I got to school, I was so way advanced especially in, in poetry and reading, because my grandfather read to me every night. You know, we would read poems, um, of, you know, most of them were British poems, of course, you know, Elegy written in a country churchyard by Thomas Gray, you know, the, the Spooner's Hesperus, you know. I, I mean, I could recite these poems by route, uh, by the time I got to school, you know. And so I, I just believe that family plays such a, a grounding, pivotal role. And so as we celebrate black history, let us remember the struggles of those who have gone on before us and yet forged ahead. You know, I was sharing with the Wednesday night group that, you know, sometimes you hear the first black, the first black athlete, the first black Olympian, the first black doctor, the first black nurse, and we, we take it lightly. But those achievers died young because of the stressors of climbing up a ladder where the wrongs were constantly being pulled out from underneath them. And so when we celebrate them, we should also look to them for the inspiration that would help to forge us ahead, forge our families ahead. You know, not, not just black families, but, but all families need to look at examples, right? Read biographies to your children of great people, you know, of the Rosa Parks and, you know, those who have paved the way for us. Read stories of inspiration so that your children can be stimulated to rise up and, and to dream big and to find their future by looking at the past. What are we doing 
to bring about change in our community. There's so much we can do. You can change one life at a child, at a time. It could be your grandkids. Invest, spend more time with your children instead of letting them spending time with tablets and television. Reduce screen time and spend more time inquiring of your children, finding out the stressors that they have at school. There is so much we can do to turn out better children in the society. I used to say to my kids, you have two choices. You can allow the culture to influence you or you can influence the culture. You can allow society to change you or you can change society. We do have the choice. And so today, I just want to challenge you to consider what you can do to not just decry the problem, but to become part of the solution. Is there something that God is calling you to do? To mentor, to serve, to protect the next generation. Let us pray for families right now. Heavenly Father, on this Black History Month, we recognize that the fight is not over. The struggle is not over. And we are still battling the consequences of stigmatism, stereotyping. And so today we just want to bring families to you. We want to bring families that are living in poverty today, that are having severe financial stressors. Open the windows of heaven and pour out a blessing on these families today, God. We want to pray for families that are nurturing the sick, perhaps having sick children or sick parents or relatives that are going through heartache and the pain of suffering. Many of our children who are suffering from imbalances in the body, in the brain. Some children are suffering from, from um, suicidal intentions and struggling with their self-esteem and self-image. Lord, we pray that you would give them your love and your hope today. We pray you'll inspire them today and let them know that they are loved and they're cherished. We pray for parents that you would give them wisdom and guidance and understanding as they raise children. We pray God for estranged family members and, and disconnected siblings and those, oh God, of us who have family members that we are not getting along with, that you would bring about healing and reconciliation and, and in time you would restore families to the closeness that is so in, essential for our flourishing. Lord, today I pray for families who are devastated because of drug addiction and 
and substance abuse. Father God, I pray today that you would repair those broken lives and places and restore health in the name of Jesus. I pray God for families who uh, are just going through the motions, but there's no love in the home. I pray for husbands and wives who have grown apart. I pray for blended families who are struggling to connect with one another. Lord, I pray today that you'd restore hope in our families. As we watch the children of Israel in scripture, we see, Lord, so much dysfunctionalism among them, but yet they maintained truth through their faith. And I pray today, God, for a revival of faith in our families. Take us back to the place where we first fell in love with you, God. The places where we first met you. I pray, God, that you would give parents and grandparents a desire to pass on the faith to the next generation. As you said to the children of Israel, that when they see, when they come into the land that you promised them, that they will not depart from the things that, that they inherited and that they would teach them to their children and to generations after generations because it's in the obedience of these laws that they would flourish. So restore the black church, restore the black communities, help us to be about your business because God in restoration of ourselves with you, we will be able to restore our children and our children's children. So God, we pray for families today, those watching, those nurturing, those caring. We pray that you would rise up and heal us and strengthen us as we forge ahead in this season, God. In the mighty name of Jesus, we pray with thanksgiving. Amen and amen. I thank you for watching today and just for participating. And I pray that you would continue to have a beautiful day. Love each other. That's what we're meant to do. God bless you. God fill you and inspire you. And may your children be blessed. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Sing along with us as we close our service today. God bless.